Frank hates this. Not the hoovering now. The Queen of the Night Aria. Mozart's Queen of the Night Aria. So much so that when Michael puts it on, Frank has gone out for a walk. Michael is wonderful. He does a, a very thorough cleaning on a Saturday and I keep everything clean in midweek. <laughs> it works out. It's usually a weekend morning when Frank goes for a walk on the beach while Michael does the hoovering to the Queen of the Night Aria. Now, this is more Frank's thing. One of the four last songs from Richard Strauss. And seeing as the programme is about Frank, we'll play the kind of music he likes. Luscious green, that is like full verdant grass. I can say the words uh, three bedroom semi. That's where Frank lives. It's on a housing estate, maybe 20 years old. So Even in the loo, you know, there's another Francis Tansy there. Why not have it there? What and if it? I say the words three bedroom semi, you can visualize the house. And enjoy it in a captive mode. Front doors recessed. Three, the auntie, look at them. There's light colored bricks on the first floor and ordinary plaster on the second floor. You know, look at this whole swerve of that. But those three words, three bedroom semi, can't convey the surprise inside. Girl of Russian extraction. There's art. Rosaline Davy. This three-bedroom semi is stuffed with it. Engaging art. Christina Roscovitz. Uh, Modern pieces. Philem Egan. Paintings. Terry Flanagan's beautiful landscape. Sculptures and, and stuff in between. With layer upon layer of fantastic three D paint. They're as gorgeous as as ice cream. As you know, you feel you could lick and touch and embrace them. They're, they're so beautiful. In a way, the three-bedroom semi is a bit like Frank. You think you know what you're looking at, and then there are surprises. And when you listen to this programme, you think you're hearing one life story, Frank's, and then there are surprises. We were thrifty, but we were comfortable. My father was a successful businessman. but having What was his business? What did he do? Butchering. Uh, he had a chain of shops around the city which grew over the years. And as being in, in the food business and then living in Kalini with fishermen with their boats at the end of the gardens and that, we were very pleased. We had the most wonderful like food, like not just on Sundays. Mother was a marvellous cook, uh, and she was house-proud and house-bound with so many children. And getting into town became difficult for her. She was expecting a child or the baby was a child in arms kind of thing. You know, when I was going into school and I do a lot of the shopping for and the grocery shopping and placing of orders and all of that thing you know and pick up the fish in dankers on the way home on a Friday or Thursday that you'd have it for the Friday and uh, I remember as a youngster I was buying fruit and vegetables for the family in Burton Morans in Richmond Street and being with Mrs. Burton and the elderly lady and Lillian was there too and Tony and discussing what was in, whether, you know, and pineapples were a variety and peaches were a variety and that kind of thing, you know, in, in the 50s. 
and going in and placing the order and deciding what, we'd, what I'd send out and what I'd get. Kilson Edwards and Michal McLeamore coming in, cavorting around the shop. Oh, the pineapples, dear. Michal, will you look? <laughs> we'll have peaches for pudding. <laughs> and old Mrs. Moore would whoosh me into the office. No. <laughs> up uh, on a high chair in the office and ask Lillian, do bring in a nice apple for Frank. <laughs> and I'd have a special treat of a nice apple for Frank. <laughs> and she protected my virginity. <laughs> While they cavorted around. <laughs> and were they, they were terribly high camp. Oh, they? utterly high camp. So when you did your leaving cert, then you went... In Nevisiate. Okay. And what did your mother think? Was she... Well, mother wept when I told her. But she knew. Like, she was, she was a devoted Catholic. My father, too. Oh, Ernest, though. I loved the idea in one way. So a son becoming a cleric, uh, you know, a, a priest. And, and the clergy were the most privileged guests in our home. Okay. Oh, you know, you wonder just how you establish these, make these decisions in life. And these are the subtle influences that occur. Like, uh, I don't think it's any accident that three of my sisters married accountants or people who had studied accountancy. My father was a businessman. Accountants were perhaps next to priests in his regard. society with the hope of going to the foreign missions as so many people aspired to at that time you know there was a, a lot of publicity given to the missions I mean if you grew up comfortably in Dublin what about living in a mud hut and getting malaria and oh one didn't think about that <laughs> one didn't think about things like that you know not at all uh, you were in the middle of a Hollywood epic oh, <laughs> absolutely I was absolutely you know oh no 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 there was all kinds of adventure ahead you, you know canoeing down the Amazon would have been nothing to it <laughs> you know this is our boys religion isn't uh, it? oh it absolutely it, it, it was that you know yeah. it, it was precise and advertised as such too in the front pages of the Independent I remember and then I was told during novitiate, you know, that, well, you're entering a society that has three vows, has a vow of obedience too, you know, and you mightn't be sent to the missions. So I ended up then being asked to study science. The mask was promoting sciences and industry, promotion of industry in Ireland and the rest. And there were shortage of science teachers. Tell me about the... the process of realising that you were gay and what kind of an impact that had on your decision to leave the, the priesthood? I was in my 20s, you know, I realised I was gay just because I, I experienced, you know, reaction to, to people who affected me, you know, who affected me as a person, who affected me sexually, who affected me, you know, and uh, I realised that it was 
men of a certain quality who inspired me, you know, in these ways, rather than women, you know, and uh, I realized, well, that's me. But it didn't affect, I was, a, I was committed to chastity, I was committed to, there was no difference to being heterosexual, <laughs> you know. One lived one's life, one lived fully, and one dedicated oneself to what one committed oneself to. Then, I would have had problems about some teachings. Especially following on my philosophy studies and scientific studies, and then into theology. And of course, there are certain issues of the claims of divinity by Jesus, the claims of autocracy in the church the, to be the, the one sole means of salvation, and all of that, you know. And then Vatican II came out with its whole new approach and appreciation to what other religions could contribute to the story of humanity. And one realized, yeah, he, he, you know, uh, there are other people thinking along these lines too. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not alone in these matters. And that. So uh, one was putting off, perhaps, uh, the final decision, hoping that perhaps your study of the next tranche in theological studies would throw a special light on it. Or, uh, and so I became disillusioned with the church. Can you not park that in the way that you parked the issues of your sexuality? Can you not park that and occupy yourself with the teaching or even hopes of going One on the could. missions? One could, but then it comes, it's taken by the case that I'm ordained and I'm teaching in Gonzaga in Dublin and I'm meeting people and preaching on Sundays and saying Mass and hearing confessions. And people raise the questions that you haven't got the answers for, the questions that you were parked. Okay. And I felt myself evading issues and not wanting to answer them because the answer they I'd be expected to give wouldn't be the answer that I wanted to give. I told my provincial, first of all, that I was wanted to leave the society and leave the priesthood that, and explain to him why. And he was very receptive, but very upset, but understanding. And then about a week or two later, I went home, and Mother was busy again, you know, preparing food for whoever she was expecting in that night. And I was saying, Mother, please sit down, I want to talk to you. And she just looked at me and she said, Frank, I know what it is. And she said, have you had good advice? Have you thought about it really well enough? Do you, how you feel you have really come to the end of your decision? And I said, yeah. And I've gone through it, and uh, this is the way I want to go. And she said quickly, said, do you want me to tell your father? And I said, no, mother, that I've got to do myself. And he was dumbfounded. He was completely just shot, silent. And... Uh, then he looked up and he said, may I ask you a question, Frank? I said, certainly, Father, uh, but I don't promise not to answer it, but you may certainly ask it. So he said, tell me, he said, Frank, is there a woman involved? <laughs> so I said, no, Father, there's no woman involved <laughs> at all. No problem there at all. 
there was no one else involved either. I, I, I didn't, wasn't involved uh, in anything uh, like that. Uh, he was relieved. Why was he relieved? Well, there had been a particularly good friend of mine uh, who was going through a rough time. And I would have been a support to her. And, uh, but she was also a lovely person. I was very, very fond of her, you know, but absolutely not a gay man. Entering in, there was no such thing as a romantic involvement anyway. And uh, I remember my father, he said he'd been in town and uh, had gone in for a sandwich to one of the hostelries around town and met the husband of this lady who drew him aside. Uh-huh. And... Uh, Oh, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what he said. He drew him aside and said, you want to look to this Jesuit son of yours, you know, and he's having an affair with my wife. Uh, that. Yes, that's what he said. Uh, so my father met me a couple of Sundays after that and called me aside and you know, asked me, would there be any foundation for her? I said, Father, you probably know as well as I know, uh, perhaps more because of your experience of a married man and all the rest in the world around town, you know, that things are not all that happy there. And uh, I've been giving you an ear and uh, giving some support and insofar as I could, but it's all very above board and very proper. So he said, well, then, what are you going to do? So I said, well, I... I thought about it, and I'm going to get involved in the catering business. I mean to go to London and to take a job in restaurants. had some difficulty getting a job because here I was, I was 40. Went to various places looking for a job and job centre and the rest and had some people in the hotel business that we knew from contacts in Dublin and got some interviews. And there were some problems because I didn't have any experience. You know, they didn't know what kind of experience I had. And here I'd been as a Jesuit and a priest and... You know, and obviously with gay manners, and they would have seen it more than, I mean, kind of more than I was, nearly, you know. And uh, well, What were those mannerisms? I mean, oh, you we twirl our hands around, you know, from our wrists. <laughs> I talk more with my hands than I do with my tongue at times, <laughs> you know. And, and so it became something of a problem when Trust House 40 were interviewing me and subsequently contacted in a very nice way and said, well, uh, unfortunately, we do feel that there might have been a problem come a Saturday semi-final in London when the crowds be hoarding, rushing down Piccadilly as to how you might be able to cope dealing with these hooligans. <laughs> you know? and, but so, so eventually then I got a job in Heathrow, a delightful experience. Because the challenges were great, you know. Mm. You could suddenly be faced at 7 o'clock of an evening with five or six stranded airplanes with 200 people on each and 1,000 people to be fed. And they vouchers. And vouchers, you know. uh, And each one, you know, stressed out, you know, and to be greeted and seated and met and and fed and and, uh, humoured. Do you remember any of those in particular? Do you remember any of the people that... that, Oh, yeah. I'm from uh, Dr. Paisley, who is a very charming, very charming passenger. 
very appreciative of any cup of tea or sandwich proffered to him in a difficult situation, you know, with all the reputation he has as an individual, he could be utterly charming and very, very kind. Did and you bless the food in front of him when you gave it to him? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, from we had some film stars and all that kind of thing. Lisa Minnelli had a wonderful session with her one afternoon and her entourage. Well, she loved her Bloody Marys. Can I ask you about romance and when, when was your first romance? Realize. My first rom- romance was I was going to boat to Hollyhead. And a young man came on board and sat down opposite me. And we got chatting. He'd been visiting Ireland. He was a very striking young man. He was tall, he was fair, he was handsome, he was very, very well built, athletic, very intelligent, working in the arts as well as in academia. And uh, we got chatting and talking. We were together the whole trip down to London and then I said what exhibitions were on he hadn't known and we agreed to meet the following day and we made in contact then he came over he stayed here then for a couple of summers on the trot he was living in the south of England I was living here he came here I went there romance at a distance though was heartbreak <laughs> heartbreak <laughs> you know and wonderful we, we had wonderful times together wonderful times together I had competition from a young lady <laughs> in that romance. He was bisexual, it turns out, and uh, they have a couple of children. Broke my heart, broke my heart. I was lonely and desperate, and, uh, and it was on the fallback from that that I, I met a partner in Ireland. And he moved in here for three or four days a week kind of thing. And then our relationship developed over a year, but then became sadly very violent. And it was very painful. What spurred the violence? I don't know what it was in him. I wasn't violent on my part, you know. And did you try and get help? Uh... Eventually, I realized just that whatever love was there on my part had worn out, and I couldn't take it anymore. And uh, I called a halt to things. I said, really, this is not love, this is not my experience, what life can be. And uh, we broke up in the September, I just 
one weekend out here, I just said, no, it's finished, can't, I can't go on. And uh, I threw his things together and put them in a case and said, come on, get it to go. Then about two months later, I got very, very ill. Oh, uh, it would have been very much like a very severe flu. So I said, if I have to take a test for everything that goes, including HIV. And eventually, my doctor, who knew I was gay and knew of my previous gay relationship, but knew I, I wasn't one who was trolling, he said, come up at 5.30 when I'll be finished, and we'll have a cup of tea and we'll have a chat about things. At that stage, I knew there was something serious. And uh, said as much, is it? And he said, yeah. You know, it wasn't categoric, but he said you can count on about two years anyway. And uh, so I said, well, I better get things in order. Remember the day, 3rd of March, 91. What was going through your head? Oh, death and dying. Very clearly. Group therapy was very helpful. You met other people who, who could be surviving too. You know, and got things together and gave away all I had. More or less. And did you have any contact with the man who was violent afterwards? He, he did ring me a couple of times. You I presumably had to tell him that, that... Oh, I did. I insisted. Uh, I, Derek, Derek wanted then him to take a test to see, was he responsible? Was he carrying? And he was reluctant. He didn't want to know anything. And eventually, uh, you know, I persuaded him that it was good for himself uh, to have things properly diagnosed. And he did eventually, and acknowledged that he had the virus. And uh, it made me, I was angry. I was angry. Very angry. You know, and as well as ill. And he would ring me up, you know, ask me, I just want to know if you're alive, kind of thing, you know. And I said, really, these phone calls are not doing me any good, and I don't think they could possibly be doing you any good. Mm. So I think, I wish you well. I hope everything goes well for you. Be sure to look after yourself. Were you, were you on drugs then immediately? Well, they didn't have drugs immediately at that stage. I then went on to treat TC fairly quickly, and about a year later, then the more active cocktails that one gives, which are very toxic. But here I am, alive and well, and very active, you know. And then I went into almost semi-retirement, you could say socially, for about four or five years, didn't go out, I didn't meet anyone. And then a friend of mine told me about, there was a gay man's dining club. Used to meet on Thursday, the first and third Thursday of the month. And then one Thursday in the Trocadero, Michael came into the room with someone else to such an evening. And we met across a crowded table and... Uh, Happily, from the word go, people were concerned about my health and inquiring about it, so there was conversation, and it was open from the word go that I had uh, HIV. And so Michael knew that, and uh, we chatted. Uh, in the, I could see that he was interested in what he had heard about me. And uh, I, we exchanged phone numbers, and I waited for a week for him to phone, and biting my nails, and wondering what he, sitting by the phone, wondering what he would he phone. <laughs> And happily, he did, and we met and went through a real courtship. Did you? A real, real courtship, yeah. Dinner's out, and 
theatre and all of that. And eventually he said, you know, Frank, uh, my heart is ticking a little bit faster, uh, you know, uh, on these occasions. And uh, your presence here means more to me than just uh, conversation and life relief. He says, um, and uh, he made a propo- made a propose to me, uh, you know, in semi kind of way. And so I said, no, hold on. I said, before we get anywhere near that, I said, you have to see my doctor and know what you're taking on. So I made an appointment with Derek and gave Derek full authority to discuss my situation, my prospects and my health and conditions and all of that very seriously with him and uh, so he did and he ran me back after his meeting Derek and says uh, uh, chapter one is nice I believe let's meet in chapter one for dinner (laughs) and so uh, we did why didn't you ring him after the Trocadero because uh, I was in a vulnerable situation and when did you tell your your family about the HIV I didn't really discuss it with them till after my father died. I didn't think they could deal with it, you know. When he had died, then I felt uh, I could be more open and be myself. And uh, My mother learned because my sister told her, one of my sisters, with a moment, I think, of reckless irresponsibility. And what was her reaction? What was your mom's reaction? My mother never raised the issue with me. We never spoke about it. And then she met Michael. Can you tell me about him? Can you describe him to me and tell me a little bit about him? He's tall, dark and handsome. (laughs) (laughs) Very intelligent. I want the reality now. Extremely (laughs) intelligent. He's extraordinarily generous. Extraordinarily kind. Wonderfully supportive. Are you of a similar age? No, he's 20 years younger than me. So what's that like? Keeps me young. Does this? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. How do you avoid the, the, the dangers of paternalism in the relationship? Oh, I think we have a certain sense of humor. You know, he, he tells me I'm working into my teaching mode. <laughs> <laughs> Frank is now retired from the family hotel business that he worked in when he came home from London. He's a member of the board of the Museum of Modern Art and he's a friend of the National Gallery. Clothes and jewellery and all that type of thing, are are they important to you? Well, they're more important to Michael than they are to me. Michael loves jewellery. He wears a lot of jewellery, a lot more than I do. So you have a gold chain and you have a kind of a silver pearl earring. I'm wearing a silver pearl earring at the moment, but that's weekday. One doesn't wear diamonds before six. <laughs> As I'm told. The fur people might object to it, but I do have a lovely mink coat that Michael gave me some years ago. And do you wear it out? I wear it for very special occasions. This is full length? A full length, almost down to the ankles. Marvellous mink coat. The spirit of Hilton Edwards and Michal McLeamor has maybe re-emerged, has it? Well, not, not, not quite to the same extent, but perhaps we have been affected. We like a little bit of flamboyance. So the poor Mrs Burke, what's her name, didn't manage to 
protect you entirely from not into Miss Burkmore and God love her that's the programme thanks for listening you can write to flux at rte.ie or to myself Ronan Kelly or to e-radio 1 Dublin 4